Uh, Christmas is obviously one of my favorite times of the year. I love the family aspect of it. I love the food aspect of it. Um, I love the tradition, uh, the pomp and circumstance. Even though I've seen it over and over again, I'll watch the parade again. Um, I love the football, the basketball, the sporting aspect. But most of all, I love the Christmas story, and we're going to read part of it today. Years ago when I was in college, I uh, managed a horse farm. Um, I was hired by a man in, in the church where I worked, and I thank him to this day because I think he just hired me because he appreciated me. He, he liked a young guy, you know, training for ministry, and, and I was serving as an interim music and youth guy in his church, and he said, I've got a job for you. And so he allowed me to hire two of my friends, and the three of us, we kind of managed this 450-acre horse farm. There were uh, cows to take care of. There were horses to take care of. Uh, there was fence to be mended. Uh, there was all kinds of equipment to be serviced. We took care of a big farm. It was in the rolling hills of Tennessee, about probably 20 miles outside of Chattanooga, in a little town called Ultawa, Ultawa, Tennessee. Beautiful, big pond on the property. Working in that farm was the closest I'll ever get to being in my own little Louis L'Amour, you know, Western novel. Because we could ride out and spend a couple hours riding those horses. We could come back at... at, at sunset we could tie up those horses we could light a fire by the pond and you'd sit there and tend the fire and the 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 light would flicker uh, and you'd see the horses in the background of the blackness it was absolutely stunning Uh, one of the guys that worked with me was named chuck and one night chuck and i decided we were going to camp out at the farm and so we had got our work done we had taken care of everything that needed to be taken care of and i brought my sleeping bag and he brought his we built a fire by the pond It was a clear night. It was a full moon. I can remember it. And I was throwing my fishing pole. Chuck, for whatever reason, decided he'd bring his chemistry book to study for a test. I don't know why you'd ever want to do that, but that's what he did. Uh, And so he's kind of reclined on his sleeping bag, reading his chemistry book by the fire. And I'm fishing with a topwater plug trying to catch a big bass. Um, I turned around and Chuck had wandered off somewhere. And that was all fine and good. But the fire had spread to my sleeping bag and his chemistry book. So I holler into the darkness, Chuck, Chuck, it's on fire. And he comes running into the picture. We start stamping this thing out, and he's trying to recover the charred pages of his textbook. I'm trying to put out those glowing embers on my army sleeping bag. Uh, And we start laughing and laughing and laughing about that. But just about that time, Chuck says, Mike, look. And he points kind of off to the east and behind us, right at the tree line, if you can imagine, This is kind of a rolling farm, and there's a big pond in the front surrounded by pasture land, and then the hillside goes up, and it's covered with trees, probably three, four hundred acres of forest. Uh, And right at the tree line, there was this glowing object. Now, it wasn't an airplane because it wasn't moving, Um, but I'm telling you, it wasn't a helicopter either because we were close enough we'd heard it. We watched it for a minute. It seemed like a long time, and then it just kind of drifted off beyond the tree line. I looked at him and he looked at me and he goes, do you think that was a you know what? Now, let me be clear. Neither Chuck nor myself think we saw a flying saucer that night, but we did see a UFO because there was an object there. It was clear as day. Uh, It was flying and we could not identify it. Um, We didn't do anything about it. I mean, it didn't cause us to kind of start studying extraterrestrial life Personally, I don't believe that life exists on other planets. You can have that belief if you'd like. Uh, That's just something I've never been into. But that night, we saw something for sure. 
but what we did or didn't do with it is what I want to talk about today. It turns out, with a little bit of research on the internet, there are loads of like Hollywood celebrities that believe they've seen UFOs. Uh, Muhammad Ali believes he's seen seven. He saw his first in 1969 when he was jogging in Central Park. Now, I found that weird. When I think about a UFO, I think about Arizona or the desert of Nevada. This guy is in Central Park jogging. Why weren't there another 200,000 people that saw this UFO? Uh, one of the more famous people that have seen UFOs is Jackie Gleason. Jackie Gleason said he saw two, and he believed and was very outspoken that extraterrestrial life was trying to study us and trying to contact us. Jimmy Carter saw a UFO. Uh, he was with 10 fellow Lions Club members in a little town called Leary, Georgia, which is just a little bit west of Albany, and they were waiting to go into this civic building, and he said, we saw a bluish light that was as bright as the moon. It appeared for a moment, and then it vanished as quickly as it had appeared. The list goes on and on and on. John Lennon, the Beatles fame. John Lennon said, I saw, quote, the classic flying saucer. He actually drew a picture of it. It looks like a kid's drawing of a flying saucer. You can find it on the Internet. Russell Crowe, the Australian actor, he was having a bat problem in Australia, uh, near his office, so he hung a camera outside and he recorded a flash of light that he believes was a UFO. My personal favorite, however, is James Tiberius Kirk, William Shatner. He believes a UFO saved his life. That's kind of appropriate, isn't it, of Star Trek fame? Uh, William Shatner was riding motorcycles with a group of friends through the Mojave Desert. He stops to drink from his canteen. They go on ahead. When he goes to restart his motorcycle, it won't start. He tries and tries and tries. He does everything he can to start this motorcycle. It is hot in the desert. It is well above 100 degrees. He sets out walking. And after walking for two hours, two hours, he collapses from heat exhaustion. He says that a shiny, sleek object came from nowhere, hovered on top of him, and mentally communicated the direction in which he should walk. He stood up and he walked in that direction. And in no time... He wound up at a gas station where, of course, he was safe and he was sound and everything was taken care of. Interesting story. Uh, David Bowie, Dan Aykroyd, Billy Ray Cyrus, Fran Drescher, the list goes on and on. Again, like I said, personally, I don't believe that life exists on other planets. But the point I want to make is that when Chuck and I spotted something on the horizon, it sparked a little curiosity. I mean, it was interesting we kind of laughed about it later, but that's about all we did with it. We didn't act on what we saw, and certainly it didn't change or forever shape our lives. Well, we're going to read a story about wise men in Matthew chapter 2. What they saw sparked their curiosity. When they followed, everything about them and their lives changed. See, I believe that all of us have revelations from God. I believe that God shows us certain things throughout our year, throughout our day, throughout our month, throughout our lives that he wants us to see. They may strike us as curious at first, but if we're willing to act on what we see, act on what we notice, act on what God is trying to show us, it could change everything. Let's read about this beginning in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 2. Matthew writes, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Uh, you might know them as wise men. Uh, here they're referred to as magi. These, incidentally, aren't the only magi note, noted in Scripture. Uh, there was a man in the book of Acts named Simon Bar-Jesus. Uh, Josephus, the ancient Jewish historian, claims that he was a member of the Magos as well. These men were astronomers, okay, not astrologers. 
They weren't studying zodiac signs. They weren't trying to foretell the future per se. What they did was they studied planets. These were very wise and learned men. These men most likely came from India and China. Uh, it is very likely that they worshiped the elements of earth and wind and fire and water. These men spotted something in the sky that sparked their curiosity and they came to Jerusalem. Verse 2, here's what they asked. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we've come to worship him. Verse 3, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, that's another way of saying scribes and Pharisees, when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them, since they were the authority, where the Messiah was to be born. Verse 5. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Uh, those scribes are quoting a four to five hundred year old prophecy by a man by the name of Micah, in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, that's what they said. Verse 7, Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them exactly what time the star had appeared. Verse 8, He sent them to Bethlehem and he said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report back to me that I too may go and worship him. Uh, he is very disingenuous in that statement. He's trying to uh, trick them. Herod wants to know where this supposed king has been born so he can execute a baby. Herod was known in our history books as uh, borderline insane as a ruler. Uh, Herod was the man who slaughtered his whole family, including his only three sons, just to protect his own throne. Herod died at the age of 70, but before he died on his deathbed, he made an edict that when he died... His men were to go out and find several influential Jewish leaders and execute them at the same time so that when the king, Herod, died, there would be mourning throughout the kingdom and not celebration. Herod was a twisted, twisted king. So when he says, tell me where he is, I want to go and worship, that was not his motivation whatsoever. Verse 9, after they had heard the king, they went on their way. The star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. Verse 10, and when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Now, we don't know exactly when the wise men came to see Jesus. What we do know for sure is that it wasn't in the stable in Bethlehem. Uh, whenever we play out the Christmas story, there's the manger, the stable, there are the animals, the shepherds, and there are typically the kings the kings weren't there on the night Jesus was born. It was likely two, maybe even three years later. Uh, verse 11 reveals a lot of that information. First of all, it says that he came to their house. Mary and Joseph are now married. Remember, in the stable, they were not married yet. They were betrothed to be married. So now they're married. And the word they use for child is a different Greek word from the word translated infant in Luke chapter 2. So when he's a child, probably two years old, uh, they arrive at his home. Remember, Herod, that crazy king, issued that edict that every child in the kingdom, male child, two years and under, was to be killed by the sword. He did that hoping to kill Jesus being a two-year-old boy. Uh, end of verse 11. Then they opened their treasures. They presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Somehow these men got God's message. 
I mean, what began as a sign in the heavens, maybe it was a new planet. They had been studying a certain portion of the sky and something new appeared. Maybe it was a comet. Maybe it was a new star. Whatever it was, it started out as curiosity, but it became over time God's message of hope. We read a moment ago when they arrived at the house, probably months into this journey, if not well over a year, they were there to worship. The Bible says they bowed to a king and worshipped him. Now, don't make the mistake of assuming these were religious people. These were not religious people. These wise men would likely not fit in many of our churches. These men were anything but religious as we know religious. Fact is, they were Gentiles. And they followed a star. Quite possibly they had heard of this prophecy because the Hebrew prophecy at this time was four, five, in some cases 700 years removed from the Old Testament. It had been around for centuries, but they set out to see it for themselves. And nevertheless, somewhere along the way, they believed. Now, here's the message today. I'm convinced as sure as I stand here and as sure as you sit there, that God wants to reveal something to you in the coming days or the coming year. God wants to reveal something to me in the coming days or the coming year. The only question is, like the Magi, will we respond? Or like Mike and Chuck at the farm, will you laugh about it, maybe tell somebody here and there, and forget it? I thought about this this week, and I thought, you know, do I really believe in 21st century modern America that God reveals stars today? Does God show us things today that he wants us to see? Does God have a plan that's not just 2,000 years old, but it's present, it's here and now, and it's for you and it's for me? Does God want to reveal something to me, and does God want to reveal something to you? Does God want to reveal something to this church? And maybe even more importantly, if he does, are we willing to respond as they did? So I thought about three things. When I consider my star, or when you consider your star, the star that God reveals, somehow, some way, several things popped into my mind. First of all, it's significant, and you need to know it's significant. The fact that God, your heavenly Father, has revealed it to you needs to tell you that it is significant because you are significant. You see, God doesn't reveal something to us for any other reason other than to bring us in line with His purposes and His ways. Now, this could be something in your home. It could be something with your work. It could be something personally. Uh, Psalm 139, David is the author, makes it perfectly clear that there's nothing insignificant about you to God. Did you know that? Psalm 139 says God knows everything about you. God knows when you get up in the morning. He knows when you lie down in the evening. God even knows things that we would think are insignificant, like how many times you stand up during the day and how many times you sit down during the day. Psalm 139 says it. Read it for yourself. What God reveals to you is significant because you are significant. David said in Psalm 139 that God knows your thoughts. God knows the words you're about to say. You're forming them on your tongue. He already knows them. If that's not significance, then I don't know what is. I think there's a principle here, and we need to consider it. I think often we can't see God in our circumstance. I mean, if you're wrestling with feelings of anxiety or you're struggling with depression, where is God in all of that? Uh, If you're struggling in your marriage, where is God in all of that? I think often in the ordinary day-to-day plodding on of life and circumstance, it can be very difficult to spot the fingerprints of God. Very often as we age and we look back, we can see it clearly. I call those spiritual markers. 
Those times in our lives when we look back and we say, oh, wow, God was there. I didn't see it then, but I can see it now. The fact is, when God reveals something to you, however he may choose to do it, it is significant because you are significant. Your star is going to be something you cannot overlook because God knows exactly what to show you. God knows how to motivate you. And what he reveals will be something that you can see. Interesting thing to me, I'm sure that these three or six or five or ten men, however many there were, I'm sure that they weren't the only ones in their culture to see the sign, to see the star. But they're the only ones to act on it. And that made all the difference. Something else comes to my mind, and that's the specialness, the special nature of your star. You realize, you need to understand at the outset, your star is for you only. It's your star. You can't expect everyone else to see it. The journey might seem lonely. It might seem arduous from time to time. It may be a long time coming, but I'm challenging you to stick with it. When God shows you something, he's showing you with significance and there's a special purpose that's just for you. You can't expect me to see it or respond to it the way you might. You can't expect someone else to see it or respond to it the way you should. While you're looking for the star, God has crafted it in such a way so as to speak specifically to you. You see, God made us all different. God laid certain things on my heart that might never cross your mind and vice versa. I think about the Old Testament, men like Moses. God had a specific job for Moses. David, the greatest king Israel ever knew, maybe he wasn't suited to be a Hosea like we studied his story. Maybe he couldn't bear up under the burden of a Daniel like we just studied his story. In the New Testament, Peter's job His emphasis was different than the Apostle Paul's. That's because God has crafted your star specifically with you in mind. That's what makes it special. It doesn't have to be everyone else's star. It's special to you because God made it that way. Uh, About 15 years ago, we were just getting the church going. I set out every spring to mow my lawn and kind of get the place under control and make it look good. I I kind of promised myself every April, this is going to be the best lawn I've had uh, thus far. Uh, At that time, I didn't have a lot of trees planted like I do now. And I had to mow about six acres, and it took a long time. I'd mow for a few hours one evening and a few hours the next evening and maybe finish it up uh, Saturday or Sunday after church. I'd set out on my tractor. I had an old Ford tractor and two-wheel drive, just typical old tractor. And there we go. I'd start out making that outer loop on my property pulling a five-foot bush hog behind me, okay? Somewhere on that first loop around my property, I would hit something in the soil that would flatten one of the right-hand tires, either the front right-hand tire or the rear right-hand tire. Happened every time. I'd hit it, and about a half a lap or a full lap later, the tire would go down. So I'd get off, and I'd have to take that thing off, throw it in the truck, and I'd run it to town to a place called Williams Tire in Metter. Now, I didn't know the Williams family very well at that time. They certainly didn't attend this church. In fact, James, the patriarch of that family, the owner of the company, he was about as big a skeptic and critic of Christianity, the church, and the Bible as you'll ever meet. But I came in there and said, James, I'm hitting something in my property, and I don't know what it is, but every time I set out to mow, I pop one of these two tires. Well, he examined the tire. He said, you're hitting something about as big as your pinky. So it's not something small. It's something big. He said, you need to get out there with a metal detector or something. You need to find it. Well, I didn't. I hem-hauled around. I thought, well, it's not going to happen again. The very next time I mowed the grass, I got on the tractor. I started on that same outer loop, and I popped one of those two tires. 
I'd take it off. Man, if it's the back tire, a tire like this big, that's a chore to jack that thing up, take it off, throw it in the truck, and go to town. Listen to me. I'm not exaggerating when I, said, when I say this. That summer, I had nine flat tires. Nine flat tires. I couldn't find whatever it is that was puncturing my tire. Nine. But what I didn't realize that God was attempting me to show me was every time I'd go to Metter, to William's Tire, and I'd engage in this dialogue with maybe Metter's biggest critic, he was, God was softening his heart. God was loosening him up. We were having conversations about God, about the Bible, about history. We were having conversations about agnosticism, about Buddhism, about the New Age uh, movement, and how all of that stacks up against Christianity. Nine flat tires. Listen. I'm certain that James began to feel sorry for me because the first time he went, it was like 30 bucks to patch his tire. By about the fourth or fifth time, he's going, oh, I'll make it 10. Just because he felt sorry for me. It was happening every week. I'm not exaggerating. But after nine weeks of consistently going by there and talking with this man about his faith or lack of, it wasn't long before he responded. And about nine months after that, I had the privilege of baptizing him. And now he's one of my dearest friends in the church. This is a man who God showed someone a star. And if no one had been willing to act upon it, as insignificant as it may have seemed, may never have found authentic faith in Jesus Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, that matters to me. And it should matter to you. Okay? So it's significant and it's, it's special. And then you've got to understand that this is so because of the substance of your star. The substance of the star is God. It's coming from God. It's not made up. It's not hocus pocus. It's just not coincidence. It's God. There's an old song that speaks of Christ's birth, the Messiah's coming to earth, and it says, wise men still seek him. God is the substance of your star. God provides the basis for your belief. Often God will use the most ordinary, at least that's the way it appears, the most ordinary thing to lead you closer to Christ. The wise men, they perked up, they followed this star. It was a new star, maybe like I said, it was a comet, maybe a new planet, something spark their curiosity and somewhere along the way their journey took on a different meaning they were no longer motivated by sheer curiosity because the text says when they finally found him they bowed down and they worshiped that's what happens with us as well we follow that star we act on whatever god reveals to us as insignificant as it may seem may surprise you where that journey leads 200 years ago there was a man in england a very wealthy english baron named Fitzgerald. He had only one child, a son. He and his wife doted on that son. He would one day fill his father's shoes and run that part of the kingdom. He, of course, was the apple of his father's eye, a chip off the old block, we might say. He grew up being cared for by not only the baron and his wife, but by the house staff as well. Um, Tragically, uh, when the son was in his teens, his mother passed away. And so now it was left on the baron's shoulders all by himself, to raise and rear his one and only son. But even more tragically, after a short illness, the son died as well. Now the baron was left all alone. In the meantime, the baron used his immense wealth to gather one of the most impressive art collections the world has ever known. Paintings by the masters of the Renaissance. They all belonged in the baron's collection. The baron left very specific instructions as to his death, When I die, I want the art collection to be auctioned off to the highest bidders. And so when he did die, and that day came, 
The art was set up throughout the castle. In fact, if you were to add the collection of art with the castle and all the land holdings, this one family, remember, 200 years ago, was worth several million English pounds. I can't imagine what kind of money that is in today's money. When the Baron died, the art exhibit was set up in the castle. People came from miles around, even other countries, to view this special collection. There was one particular painting, however, that didn't get a lot of attention. It was a painting of the Baron's only son. It was really kind of a poor quality painting. It was done by a local unnamed uh, artist no one had ever heard of. And so these wealthy buyers and collectors, these museum people that were looking to build their collections, they ignored it completely. When the bidding started, the attorney read from the will, the first painting to be auctioned off will be the painting of my beloved son. So they brought it center stage and no one placed a bid. Finally, one elderly gentleman spoke up and he placed the first and only bid. He was the caretaker of the family who for 35 years had looked after this little boy and taken care of his father when his mother died and then taken care of the baron when both the mother and the son had died. For less than an English pound, this guy bought that painting. The auctioneer brought down a gavel, wham! And he turned again to the attorney and he said, read from the will. And the will read as follows. Whoever buys the portrait of my beloved son gets my entire art collection. The auction is hereby over. Now I tell you that story because I want to know what portrait has caught your eye. Doesn't mean much to other people. They've overlooked it completely. But it's caught your eye because it's special to you. It seems significant in some ordinary way, perhaps. What is God revealing to you this coming year? What dreams and hopes is God going to provide? And more importantly, are you willing to follow after them? My encouragement to you on this Christmas Sunday of 2016 is focus your attention on your faith walk like never before this year. Because few around you may see its value, but your investment in a Christ-like life, totally devoted in faith to a loving Savior, can become more valuable than you could ever possibly imagine. What began as a journey based solely upon curiosity and intrigue turned into a worship experience for these wise men. And that's what happens to us too. God gets bigger, we get smaller, and our lives become fuller. I want to end with a worship experience today by asking you to stand and sing this song with us. You're going to recognize this tune, however the words have been altered and changed to fit the holiday season. Merry Christmas.